Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoshan for Lucy Nalpotangel. Today's show is about diets. So why are we doing the show? Well, about two months ago, I started a ketogenic diet, which if you don't know, is a high-fat, medium-protein, low-carb diet. That's a pretty good science behind it, but the very basic idea is that the more fat you eat, the more your body relies on fat for energy. You then tend to burn more fat while resting, eat less food, and your body goes into a state of ketosis, which is supposed to have all these other benefits, like a sharper mind, and, and et cetera, et cetera. It also sounds kind of cool, right? Ketosis. Sounds like you're in a special place of transcendentalism. Um, also, senior producer Lydia Brown has had some success with her diet and another co-worker is doing the paleo diet. So we were like, you know, we have to talk about this thing called a diet, which is, is really just literally it's, just, it's a list of things you eat, but it's turned into a list of things we don't eat, which is sort of weird from an evolutionary perspective. So that's what... I want to talk about in the A segment, and I got to get to give a shout out to that music. What a great uh, opening song that is to, to start this conversation. So I want to talk about the evolution of diet and to help us uh, talk about how we went from hunter-gatherers to farmers to this sort of fast food culture and how some of us are actually trying to go backwards to, this, to the diet we used to eat. Um, we have on the phone Ann Gibbons. Ann is a contributing correspondent for Science Magazine, and she's also author of a book called The First Human, The Race to Discover Our Earliest Ancestors, and Welcome to Where We Live. Hi, happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about what our ancestors ate. So we, we know a little bit about their diet, and there's sort of this theory that when they started eating a lot of meat, that that's when the brain started to grow. But then there's this, also this theory that, well, it was more when we started to cook our food, that's when our brain started to grow. So talk about the, the diet of our ancestors and you know what, what, sort of, what started to happen um, with their diet that sort of led to the agricultural revolution, sort of the evolution of people. Yes, so I'll give you a quick crash course on the evolution of our diet. Uh, anthropologists don't like us talking about the paleo diet because they ask which one, mm. which ancestor. Are we talking about our Paranthropus ancestor that ate mostly grass? You know, or are we talking about Neanderthals? Uh, what, which, which ancestor and where? Because just a little background, until about 100 years ago in most places and still in many parts of the world, people usually don't get enough calories to eat. So they've got to eat anything and everything they can to survive. So that would end up being in different habitats and different environments. That means you eat very different foods. So if you're, if you're living on the seashore in Indonesia, mostly in the water, traditional people there will eat lots of seafood and seaweed. If you're living in the tropical forest, lots of fruits. If you, so you probably get my point that you're going to eat different things depending on what's available for calories. Mm. And you're going to be nomadic moving across the environment uh, until we had agriculture 10,000 years ago. So our ancestors ate many, many different foods, but there are some common themes to them, if you want me to go over those. Yeah, sure. Cool. I'll just touch on some of them. Yeah. So basically, a lot of people think of a caveman diet as being lots of meat. You know, you just the antelopes kind of wander into the, out in the savannah, and they're just there everywhere waiting for you to bonk them on the head with a stone tool, is one of my <laughs> sources said. And, and then, you know, maybe they, they, they also get a few tubers and other things like that. What we found, what researchers have found by looking at, the diets of traditional peoples all over the world, especially hunter-gatherers, people, the last of the groups of people who hunt and gather for their food, which is what our ancestors did 
for millions of years, until 10,000, well, well, for 2 million years they were hunting at least, maybe probably longer, 3 million years, something like that. Um, just for a little bit of perspective, chimpanzees and gorillas are our closest relatives, and they don't eat much meat. Chimpanzees eat a little bit, and maybe once in a while they'll kill a monkey or something. But mostly it's all plants, and they spend the whole day doing that. The first big revolution for, for our ancestors about 2.5, 2 million years ago is that with stone tools they were able to carve up carcasses. They scavenged. They were able to begin to hunt, and they suddenly had this big packet of calories, you know, meat that uh, was important for letting us have bigger brains, which mm. are voracious and need a lot more calories to sustain. Mm. So that was a big change. The next big change was cooking, which helps you pre-digest your food and get more calories more easily. You end up with more free time, and that allows a lot of changes that were important in human evolution. The third one was agriculture, and we'll come back to that. Huge, huge change for the way we eat, and, and, and that changed our hunter-gatherer ways. But if you look at the diet of hunter-gatherers today, the Hatsa in, South, in uh, Tanzania, the bush, the, the, the San Bushmen in South Africa, the Chamani foragers, I've traveled with all these people, been able to visit them all. They eat a lot of nuts and tubers and other vegetables and usually some kind of starchy plant that gives them enough calories. The men hunt. They love meat. I mean, that's the, most, that's the most delicious piece of food. That's the most exciting thing to get. But most of the time, the guys just don't get that much meat. It's really hard to do. They go off to hunt, and if it's the dry season, they may come back with one scrawny antelope. But what they're mostly relying on are the tubers or the bananas or the nuts that the women and children gather. Mm. So it's kind of ironic. Man the hunter relied a lot more on woman the forager than is commonly represented, represented when you think of paleo diets. And we're going to come back to that in the C segment and talk a little bit more about um, native diets and, and people still eating that way today. Um, so I'm wondering, um, physiologically speaking, with the diet we have today as human beings being you know, pretty significantly different from the diet that we've eaten up until, I don't know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago even, um, are, how adapted are we to be able to eat the food we eat and be healthy? Or is the food we have now just way too, I don't know, is it too, too many carbohydrates, too much pro, too many processed foods? Like, are we adapted to eat the food we eat today? Yeah, so there's a discordance. A lot of people think we have these Stone Age bodies in a fast food, fast food world, right? And that we are eating foods that, to which our bodies were not adapted. So here's the interesting part about this. There's real variation in how different people have adapted to the modern diet. The Western diet, as we know it in our country, is pretty lousy. We all agree to that. Too much sugar, too much salt, too much fat, too many processed foods, not enough fiber. Big, big part of that, right? Mm. Colon cancer and all the other issues that come from, from that. And we're in what we call an obesogenic environment. We get our, the bottom line is we get too many calories way too easily, and we're sedentary. So it's a combination of lifestyles that are not as active as they used to be and foods that are way too easy to get too many calories from. Um, that don't have as many nutrients, by the way, as that hunter-gatherer diet. It had many more diverse nutrients. So when we moved to agriculture 10,000 years ago to 8,000, 6,000 years ago, all over the world agriculture was invented in many places, so many different cultures adopted it. We moved to a lot more grains, and the, the diet was less diverse and less healthy at that point, partly because we also settled down with our domestic animals, which allowed the development of diseases like flu and TB and all sorts of things. So it was a bad adapt it was it was bad for our for our bodies initially, but it allowed us to have more children rapidly. Mm. The food security of getting more calories reliably was adaptive. It, natural selection favored that, so agriculture spread rapidly. What happened along with that is there were some genetic changes. We ended up with new genes for lactose tolerance, getting the sugars out of milk. 
genes for digesting starch. The amylized gene is one of them, and people in different populations have different copies of that. But also our gut bacteria adapted. So people whose ancestors were farmers for a long, long time, 10,000 years, probably have a better time adapting to the Western diet now. If your ancestors have been eating this kind of food longer, I mean, even our dogs have adapted. There's a lot of information that dogs are now mm. eating gluten, right? Mm, <laughs> Their right. have adapted to gluten. So depending on where you're from, the people who are hardest hit when they switch to the Western diet are people in traditional cultures that get it quickly, like the Chimani foragers in Bolivia or the Mayans in Mexico or in India, people who, who's, who suffered famine 100 years ago and had very efficient bodies and were eating lots of vegetarian diets. When they suddenly go to all the Western fast food and chicken and everything like that, they end up suffering the metabolic syndrome, which is diabetes, heart disease, all these, all these dietary problems. So it's harder on them. So there's variation in how people respond to this diet. However, I think most of us will agree that the Western diet is not good for any of us, right? Right. That we need to adjust it. And that's where all the confusion comes in. How, how, you know, where do you go to eat a healthy diet? And, and this idea that certain people have, have evolved gut bacteria to digest certain things over time, I mean, most, most Westerners probably would not know whether, you know where their family came from and where, oh, I mean, they have an idea, but they might not know, you know their family history. And, and so how do people really get to know what's sort of the ideal, maybe this is a question we're going uh, to bring up in the B segment, but maybe you have also talked about this in some of the research you've done, but how can people know uh, you know, what diet is good for them? Is there a universal good diet, or is there something um, that is, is it specific to individuals? So I'm a real fan of people like my, Michael Pollan and Mary Nessel who don't make healthy diet very complicated. I like the Mediterranean diet. I think that if you look around the world, one thing that you find in every diet, except for the Arctic people, and we can come back to that, is lots and lots of plants and vegetables, a real base, a med- you know, pulses, legumes, foods that have lots of fiber, diverse nutrients, and some meat. You know, it's, meat's not a demon. I don't really believe in demonizing certain foods. You can have some sugar, some fat, you know, fat, definitely good fats, olive oils, foods like that. And, in fact, there's a funny story about fat. One of the anthropologists that I interviewed, Alison Brooks, was with a Kung son uh, in South Africa, and her grad students were sitting there thinking about, oh, gosh, I miss pizza, I miss this, I miss that. They were in the field, and they turned to the Kung guy and said, what do you miss? And he said, oh, I'd really like a big piece of fat that drips down my chin. <laughs> <laughs> so humans really crave fat. Right. It's all in moderation, though. I think, you know, there, it, 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 I mean, we all know this is not all that complicated. It's very much that Michael Pollan message of, you know, eat, eat, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. And I think that is a really good prescription, and it's not all that complicated. I don't, you know, if you've got celiac disease, yes, gluten's bad for you. But I think a lot more people think they've got gluten intolerance and they demonize it than actually do. I mean, if our dogs right. are already adapted, I think a lot of people are as well. Right. So you bring up an interesting point. So I pointed out in the opening that I'm on this ketogenic diet, which is sort of a high fat diet. Now you want to be, you want to eat healthy fats. You don't want to just go eat all sorts of, you know, um, un- unhealthy, um, you know, types of fats. So, you know, when you eat like avocados and healthy nuts and oils and things like that. And you, when you mentioned that, like the Inuit people who eat mostly uh, like meats, like seals, whales and stuff like that, how do their bo- how are their bodies adapted if they're not getting a lot of plants? I mean, I, they're obviously able to survive, have survived generations. What what sort of evolutionary adaptations have they gone through to be able to do that? They're super active. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. They burn sense. a lot of calories. Also, also, 
in the summer they'd eat berries and plants when they get to them and during the rest of the year they get from the stomach contents of the meat that's frozen out that they they have the frozen meat around their their habitats now this is changing rapidly what was really sad is when the USSR fell apart, the Ivanki reindeer herders, for example, were settled in villages. And almost immediately when they went to the Western diet, they were less active and they ended up with a metabolic syndrome. Mm. Now, there have been some really interesting research that show that they have a genetic adaptation. Some of these people that eat a lot of meat that allows them to eat meat without some of the problems that you get from eating char- cooked meat hmm. are carcinogenic. So some of those ingredients, they seem to have adapted some genes for that. But here's the really problematic part about looking back. It's really interesting to look back and see what our ancestors ate, and you can learn a lot about the kinds of nutrients that we, you know, we have adapted to, which are important. But we also have to remember that natural selection favors having more babies. It doesn't favor longevity. Hmm. Evolution favors the people whose children survive. That doesn't mean it favors adaptations that mean you live the longest. Hmm. Being, being healthy enough and strong enough to have more children can mean just being stronger, heavier, having mm. more calories, more protein in your diet, it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the best thing for your heart and for your, you know, your brain for longevity. That's a different, different goal. Um, and I think that's really important to remember. So, so looking back over time, and people were just so much more active. Mm. Now, the, the, the third big thing, the fourth big thing, actually, that happened that really, I think, has ruined our diet is, you know, agriculture initially meant people still had very active lifestyles. The Industrial Revolution is what it really did us in. We mm-hmm. went to milling grains in ways that we didn't get as many oils out of them. You, you probably know that. Not as many of the omega fatty acids are in the grains that we eat. Right. Um, the food industry is thinking more about taste and adding more sugar and salt than they are worrying about what's healthy for us. So I want to talk a little bit about psychology because it seems like when when the Industrial Revolution happened it, in all these sort of um, prepackaged foods start coming out, and the whole the marketing, well, hey, this is easier. It's not going to take so much of your so much of your time to be in the kitchen, and and, and the evolution of, of the psychology of food from I guess like World War II era to where we are is, is really fascinating to me. Like my grandmother used to take a, a can of tuna fish and make it last for five sandwiches because you know she was a product of the World War II generation, and you know food was scarce, and so scarcity, you know, when you had plenty, you you really made sure that you distributed it all and everybody consumed, and that sort of mentality translated to my mother. And so when I was growing up, it was always like, clean your plate, you know, and if you don't eat your, all your food, you know, because like food is <laughs> scarce around the world. And, and so now I have this mentality and my, my fiance is always giving me crap about it because I'm always like, I have to finish my plate. She's like, no, you don't have to finish the whole thing. So I'm wondering about like sort of the, the evolution of plenty and how that's sort of had an impact on not, not, not what we eat, but how much we eat. Yeah, so I doubt that our ancestors were good, you know, eating companions. They were probably trying to eat every calorie, calorie they could. They don't think in terms of long-term. So when you even watch the Hatsa today, they're not our ancestors, okay? They're, they're fully evolved, modern, current people. But when they eat, hunter-gatherers, they eat the whole carcass, eat mm-hmm. the whole thing. They, they stuff themselves with whatever they bring home. And they don't think about storing food because they don't have refrigerators and ways to store it. The only ones who did were really people in the Arctic who had the frozen carcasses for the winter, right? Right. So, so yeah, I think we're evolved to eat everything we can as rapidly as possible and to eat those sugars and fats and salts that, you know, this idea of self-discipline is sort of hard to, to uh, sort of fit with that idea that we had to eat to be, survive and be able to have more children. So I think um, 
that is probably what most people thought. But now in an obesogenic environment, what is adaptive and what's healthier is not to eat everything and to take small portions mm. and to have to do things like work out, right? Because right. you're not out in the field all day. You're not walking miles between villages, which a lot of people still do around the world. You see people walking everywhere when you, when you go to the developing world. Right. So, you know, you bring up this, this idea that, you know, portion, you know, obviously eating what you can and, and staying active intentionally. But I'm wondering, like, for some people who might not have access to healthy food because they live in food deserts or they live in places where um, it's just generally hard to get to the supermarket. Um, what about access and affordability of healthy foods? Um, is that is that something that's improving or do we still have some uh, a ways to go with that? So I think we need to look to other cultures. Um, if you look to Europe, especially France. France has been really good at putting in all sorts of protective measures to protect small farms, small agriculture, small artisan cheese making, small food production of every type, right? So people eat their local food and their local ingredients. That is protected because it costs more to produce slow food, which is local fruits and vegetables, organic farms, sustainable farming practices. They're not only better for us, they're better for the environment, the food is fresher, but they're expensive in our country. Mm. That's the problem. And unless government subsidizes them and makes sure that these small farmers get to grow these foods and distribute them locally, we're going to end up with mass-produced big agriculture because it's much cheaper. You know, there was a famous like, uh, article in the New York Times Magazine where Michael Pollan tried to raise a steer sustainably. This was about a decade ago, and he found he just couldn't compete mm. with the slaughterhouses and the, 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 the beef that were raised with antibiotics and, not, and fed awful, that awful stuff that is you know, processed meat that, the, that is given to cattle. So they need antibiotics because they have diarrhea all the time. Mm. So, so good, sustainable, slow food practices are great, but we do need to have some government subsidies like in France or other countries that do that. The other thing that gives me hope, though, is there is a voluntary sort of wonderful trend. I think, I think across the country people are going to farmers markets more alice waters and people like her have started great programs in schools where children have farms and grow the foods and eat them at lunch that is very much like in europe um in france where the kids get wonderful meals at lunch and eat all sorts of interesting dishes and get used to them at a, at a young age so part of its habit it's it's introducing our children early in schools and through nutrition programs i i've always felt like a healthy habits kind of part of the curriculum should be should be introduced for children. Mm. Well, Anne, I could probably talk to you through an entire hour, but unfortunately we have to take a break. Uh, I've been talking with Ann Gibbons. She writes for Science Magazines. Today's show is about diets and food. How do we get to where we are today? There's a lot to digest, that's for sure. See what I did there? <laughs> today will be a day of puns if I can get away with it. Send your questions and your favorite food pun our, our way. I'll see if I can squeeze it into the show. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thanks, Anne, for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. That clip goes out to my mom, my sisters, my fiance, my future mother-in-law. It's from the movie Devil Wears Prada. I hope if you haven't seen that movie, you have to because it's great. And that scene, I, I love that scene because it's a great critique on so many cultural things, body image, calorie counting, food restrictions. And it's, it's just hilarious because it's really not that far from the truth. 
This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche. I'm in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the mastication arts, if you will. That was about as pretentious as I could possibly be. Uh, why we eat what we eat, why we don't eat what we don't eat. Uh, have we lost an important connection to food and to land? And if so, can we ever make that connection again? Here to help us swallow some truth about dieting is Dr. Anya Yastrobov. Uh, Dr. Yastrobov, uh, please forgive my puns. I'm going to be probably doing them throughout the whole show. Uh, Dr. Yastrobov is an assistant professor of medicine and pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine. She's also an adult and pediatric endocrinologist and obesity medicine physician. She joins us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Dr. Yastrobov, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Happy to be here. You can also join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WNPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So, Dr. Yesterboff, I want to talk about um, some fad diets. You know, we touched on a few in the first segment. Mm -hmm. um, but what makes something a fad diet? I mean, is it are all diets fad diets or is any sort of, uh, you know, what, how do you define that? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, diet in and of itself is just basically what we eat habitually, uh, whether as an individual or as a community. To diet, the verb to diet, um, is the actual um, practice of restricting uh, certain types of food or limiting the amount of food that we eat. So really a fad diet or what we perceive in, in society as a fad diet is uh, specifically choosing something to restrict. So, for example, in ketogenic diet, you're obviously focusing more on eating protein, fat, rather than um, carbs, so you're restricting carbs or eating different types of carbs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, over time, there's many different fads that kind of go through, uh, and they tend to repeat themselves. Um, so, for example, right now, there's definitely a focus on um, whether it's ketogenic, paleo, um, if you look back and restricting sugar, and if you look back over time, um, in the 1970s, uh, the idea was that sugar was bad. In the 1980s, it was that cholesterol was bad. Mm -hmm. In the 1990s, it was fat. Um, and then more recently, carbohydrates and sugar again. So we kind of go through these cycles of uh, deciding that one macronutrient or one component of our diet is not healthy for us, and we choose to restrict that. Um, and so in some ways, uh, you know, that could be perceived as a fad diet. And uh, you know, was re as researching this for the show, and came across some really interesting ones like the cabbage soup diet, which seems to be making a resurgence, and also the tapeworm diet, which has not made a resurgence, and hopefully it never will. Um, but are these diets effective? I mean, they, people do seem to seem to lose weight, but I guess the problem is once they lose the weight, keeping the weight off in the long term seems to be the struggle. So, I mean, are they effective at losing weight? But are, can they be effective in the long term? Fad diets. Yeah, so that's a really, really great question, and and uh, you know, there's been research and studies looking at which diet is uh, a good diet, or 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 even which fad diet may be a good diet. Um, and you hit the nail on the head when you said sustainability or maintenance, weight loss maintenance. So many people go on these because it's easier to choose one um, or two uh, components of food that are um, the bad, the evil, and just not eat that, um, and and do that for a short period of time. And the problem is that if you do that rather than focusing on what I try and focus on with my patients, which is healthy eating of whole foods and some of the things you touched on with Anne, um, people are not able to sustain that long term. So if you look at the studies that actually compare which diet may be, quote, the best or the ideal diet, um, there really isn't an answer. And what, the, what really 
looks to help people maintain and sustain weight loss is what they can adhere to. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, some people may be able to adhere to eating certain types of foods more than others. But if, for example, you crave carbohydrates and you choose to follow a low carbohydrate diet, it may be very difficult for you long term. You could do it for a few weeks, um, potentially even a few months. But when you transition back to eating what you used to eat before, because you're not able to sustain that restriction, you gain back the weight. Right. Um, the, the one other, well, there's many other issues, but one other issue that I focus on with patients is that if you choose to restrict certain things just, um, you know, um, uh, very strictly, you may develop some vitamin deficiencies or some other macronutrient deficiencies. And so we talk about that in terms of monitoring and making sure that people get enough nutrients. So sustainability and then making sure that the individual staying healthy are two things that we really try and focus on. What percentage of your patients would you say come to you and they want to do a fad diet or they are doing a fad diet? And, and I mean, you describe sort of, you know, your advice to them, but mm -hmm. how, how would you describe in terms of the percentage of patients that come mm -hmm. to you that are doing that, trying to do that? I would say, um, I would say most of my patients have tried some sort of fad diets mm. um, or some si some sort of food restriction, whether it's caloric restriction or macronutrient restriction. Um, so I would say a majority. Um, I don't know the exact percentage, but most have. Um, and most have tried different things. Um, and what I usually start out by saying is actually inviting patients to tell me uh, what their weight journey has been mm. uh, when they first wanted to lose weight, when they first perceived themselves as overweight or obese and kind of share that story with me. And from that, together, we try and gleam what has worked and what hasn't worked for them and try and identify things that may be helpful for them in the long run. Um, so, you know, people do come to me specifically with the question that you're raising, which is, you know, I'm following paleo or I'm following ketogenic. Um, you know, what do you think of it? And, and, and do you think it's helpful and sustainable? And what will I be able to lose weight. Most people's question is, can I lose weight? Not, can I lose weight and sustain the weight loss? Um, mm. And and how is that going to affect my health long term? And we really focus on this idea that obesity is a chronic disease. It's not that you lose weight and you no longer have the chronic disease of obesity. The idea is, is that you lose weight, but you always have the chronic disease of obesity. And it's our job and our role to help you figure out how to sustain that weight loss. Mm. So the example that I give is, for example, because I use um, uh, medications to help people lose weight as well as talking about diet and healthy lifestyle um, to support those efforts. Um, but the example that I give is hypertension so or high blood pressure. So if you go to your doctor and you have high blood pressure and your, blood, and your doctor recommends a medication or perhaps a low-salt diet um, and your blood pressure returns to normal, uh, your your doctor would not take away the medicine or tell you to now start eating salt because mm -hmm. your blood pressure is normal. Right. So it's the same thing with weight. If you lose the weight, um, why would I take the medication away or why would I um, recommend that you go back to eating the way that you did before? You're, you're going to gain back the weight. So we kind of focus on this idea that this will be a lifelong journey um, and that I'm there to help guide them to where they want to get to in terms of their goals for a healthy life and a healthy body. 
Right. One of the things that I consistently come across when I'm reading about this stuff is sort of for long term weight loss or long term maintenance, mm -hmm. it's it's about developing habits, like mm -hmm. better habits and breaking old habits. And I feel like that's sort of a problem I have. Um, I want to just mention a, a, a Facebook comment from Tracy. Tracy tells us on Facebook, she says, I'm currently doing Whole30. I'm trying to pinpoint a particular issue, namely inflammation. I was hoping to lose weight in the process, but I don't think I've lost much, if any. I'll be done on Tuesday, and then there's a 10-day reincorporation period that should be interesting to see what's changed. I've gone from coffee with cream and sugar to black coffee, and I have come to like it. Hopefully, this will curb basically the only added sugar I regularly used to enjoy. I'll bet my alcoholic intake will also be different after this experience. So what, what, what would you say to, to Tracy who's saying she's doing this thing, but she doesn't think she's lost much weight, um, um, but she says she she's, seems like she has been changing some habits in terms of her coffee and, and her alcohol. What sort of, what, what kind of advice would you give her? Um, so, you know, in general, anything that is short term, um, it, I don't necessarily, you can try it, of course. Right. And say, for example, she did notice a lot of differences and felt different, felt like she had more energy, um, and certainly focusing on um, uh, reducing um, as much added sugar as you can often helps people in the long run um, because their cravings may change and things like that. Um, one of the only foods that I, or one of the several foods that I say has no nutritional value, for example, is soda. So regular soda, like, well, I'm not going to name the brands, but right. regular soda. Know. Yeah, we all know them. Regular soda in general, um, it doesn't have any nutritional value. So reducing sugar intake in that in that way um, can definitely be helpful. Um, what I usually say is the short-term type of things aren't necessarily the things that are going to get you to your goals and the healthy living and the healthy life. So some of the things that you talked about with Anne, for example, focusing on eating fruits, vegetables, whole foods, and less processed food, less added sugar, things like that, those are the things that are going to get you to um, your health goals, whether that's you know reducing inflammation if she has an inflammatory disease or something like that. Um, so I focus more on that and in terms of making um, small changes but consistently over time. So think about if you made one change every month or one change every week if you could, but you sustain that change. So for example, let's say that you really love gummy bears or you really <laughs> love drinking um, Coke or whatever it is mm -hmm. and you decided that instead of doing that, you are going to eat a bowl of strawberries every day instead of whatever it is that your your sugar craving is. Um, what kind of change would that be if you made one of those changes either every week or every month? Well, if you did it every month, then by the end of the year, you'd have 12 changes. And all of that adds up. So as long as you eat your bowl of strawberries and don't then add in some other kind of sugar, added sugar from somewhere else, then over the course of the year, you will end up um, healthier and you will end up reaching some of your goals. But um, overall, you know, in terms of short, quick fixes, um, if there was a short, quick fix, then all of us would be using it. Same thing in terms of a medication or something. There isn't. Usually the weight or the medical problem did not occur overnight. And so whatever it is in terms of the treatment we implement, it's not going to uh, cure you overnight or help you overnight. In right. fact, we don't have a cure for overweight obesity. That's why it's a lifelong chronic disease, and that's why it's a journey to help people 
become healthier. I do want to ask about the sugar because one of the mm-hmm. things that I come across constantly with the ketogenic diet is mm-hmm. that, you know, you get fruits in real moderation because, you know, fruits also have sugar. And some of the things they tell you is that, you know, if you if you consume too many fruits, it, it you know, it'll spike your blood sugar and it'll spike your insulin and then that sugar will be stored as fat. So that's why, you know, fruits are generally avoided. Can you speak to that? Like are mm-hmm. are do fruits can fruits in moderation be okay? Is there some is there such thing as too many too much fruit? Is it mm-hmm. is, could that be bad? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Um so what I would say is that I generally don't recommend for my patients not to eat fruit. Um, I I generally say fruits and vegetables, if you can put the vegetables first, um, but fruits and vegetables, I I don't restrict. Um, If all you eat is fruit, yes, that would not be um, great. That's not going to give you enough nutrients. You need to eat protein and fat as well. You need to eat all the macronutrients. But I don't say um, don't eat fruit. Um, And in general, that's not where people run into problems. Um, so as long as your entire diet isn't composed of fruit, um, then uh, then I don't take issue with it. Um, you know, most people will choose to eat other sugary, sweetened things um, uh, versus the fruit. Fruit, you have to remember, is packaged in fiber. Mm. Um, so you're going to digest it in a very different way than you will um, candy um, or soda or sources of, of pure sugar. Um, so you're even going to digest it differently than, you know, white bread, pasta, rice, things like that. Um, so again, I just try and shift towards um, vegetables, fruit, whole foods, um, if at all possible. Um, one thing that you touched on with Anne that I think is really important is that um, there are individuals who don't live in um, areas, and this might lead into your next segment as well, but they don't live in areas um, where uh, those types of foods are available and they live in food deserts. And, what and that is a, a huge challenge and I think one for our society to really address. Um, one thing that I do focus on is, okay, let's talk about where you do live and what um, the sources of fruits and vegetables and lean protein and healthy fats might be. So for example, if your store or a store nearby does not um, carry fresh fruit and vegetables, are they in the frozen food section? Can you focus on buying foods um, that are frozen um, but that still have nutrients um, that you can that you can consume um, or eggs for protein and things like that? So there are ways to eat those whole foods um, even um, hopefully in places where there aren't so many uh, resources. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes. I, I want to ask you also about uh, vegetarianism and veganism. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of people close mm-hmm. to me um, uh, are vegetarians. Um, my my fiance's sister is a vegan. She's been a vegan for a very long time. She's very healthy. Mm-hmm. Are there ways people can avoid eating uh, animal proteins or even animal byproducts and still uh, be okay? Is there, um, you know, I guess that's the question that um, I have often. I mean, I, it seems like they're they're fine, but um, I'm wondering, are there are the people who are able to do that? Yes. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, I get that a lot as well um, from from patients who are who are trying to change their diet or become healthier. It is possible, um, absolutely. And I think that the most important thing is talk to your physician um, and make sure that you don't have vitamin deficiencies, for example, B12 deficiency or iron deficiency, um, and making sure that you're getting all the nutrients that you need 
need, um, for example, spinach or green leafy vegetables that have more iron. Um, and if you do need supplementation, that you do get that through your physician. So, but yes, absolutely, people can live very healthy lives eating those types of diets. Um, and it really gets at the point too that you discussed earlier in terms of is there an ideal diet for everyone? And the answer is no. We're all different. We're all genetically as well as environmentally in terms of how we grew up, or, or even the environment we grew up in when we were um, in our in our uh, in, uh, being developed in our mother's um, uterus. All of our environments are different, and so there is not one right diet for everyone. So for your family members, it sounds like some of them are vegan or vegetarian, and that is is really working for them. But for other people, that would not be the the diet that works for them. And with patients um, that I counsel, basically I say I don't know what the what the diet that's going to be the most helpful for you is, and so it's a process over time to kind of figure out did this help you feel like you had more energy and could do everything that you wanted to do? And we focus on what is the diet that is going to help you live the healthiest life that you can live to enable you to run after your grandchildren or um, take walks with your friends or whatever it is that's going to help you to live the life that you want to live. You, you bring up an interesting point about genetics. So how can people know what uh, their body type um, or what sorts of food fits their genetics? Is that something you can figure out? Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So the answer is not yet, um, but you touch on a great point because there are diets uh, or there are um, studies now, for example, looking at um, um, uh, FGF21 gene polymorphism. So basically um, uh, looking at this specific polymorphism, they found that different individuals respond differently to low-carb, high-fat diet or um, high-fat, low-carb diet. Um, so there are inklings of we know that this is coming and eventually we probably will have that. It comes into this idea of phenotyping um, different types of obesity. So just like there's not one type of cancer, there's not one type of obesity. Mm. Um, and it's really um, naive for us to think that that's the case. Um, but it's certainly still a novel concept because obesity um, was only um, quote, declared an, a, a disease by the American Medical Association in 2013. Mm. The Obesity Medicine Board, so the board certification for physicians, um, uh, just uh, started in 2011, and the fellowships for obesity medicine started in 2007 for physicians. So basically, it's, an, it's a new field, even though, you know, uh, we have an obesity epidemic. Um, and so the co these types of concepts of the fact that there's not one type of obesity is new. Um, and so what what we're trying to do within research and what researchers are focusing on is trying to phenotype different types of obesity. Mm. And that will certainly involve genetics um, to help figure out what types of diets uh, work for different um, individuals, um, as well as other factors. So what type of phenotype is different in terms of behavior, um, craving? Um, you know, do you um, eat more because you're tired? Do you eat more um, because you eat a certain type of food or you crave a certain type of food and mm. all those types of things will um, hopefully be figured out within within um, years to come as, mm. as we're, we're going forward so that's a great question I imagine that that poses quite a challenge to to you and your colleagues trying to figure all that stuff out um, I want to take a quick call we um, dr. Yesterbuff mm -hmm. we only have a couple minutes left sure. in the segment but I want to take a call uh, from Shelly Shelly is calling from Norwich she has a question for you go ahead Shelly what's your what's your question 
Hi, good morning. Um, my question is in regards to um, my kids. I have two. My daughter's 14 and my son is 13. Um, my daughter has some endocrine system issues. Uh, she is being treated for insulin resistance. And um, my son is otherwise healthy. Um, my question for you is this. They have been raised each eating the same type of food, um, each encouraged to exercise regularly. Um, I've always strived to feed them healthy foods. Obviously, sometimes they will eat, you know, a treat or two or whatever. But um, I'm just wondering as to why one child would be so affected and the other would not be. Great questions, Shelley. Thank you so much for that. Um, and your daughter is 14, is that right? Oh, Shelley, you there? I'm not sure if I can hear Shelley, but. Oh, I am. I'm here. <laughs> Shelley, uh, your daughter is 14, is that correct? She is. Yeah. She is. Yeah. So great question. So uh, so this really gets at the point of we have individual differences. So even though your children are both genetically similar, obviously, um, they're not twins, but they're genetically similar um, and they've been raised in the same environment, they have a different response to the same type of food environment, at least that you've provided for them as they're growing up. Um, they may have had a different environment in utero, depending on what you ate. Um, but more importantly, um, there are other factors that affect it. So gender, so you have a daughter and a son. The other thing is your daughter is currently going through puberty. She's 14. Um, the average age of menarche or first period is 12 and a half in girls. And we know that puberty is actually a time of insulin resistance in um, in adolescents and in children. So one of the things that's, that's potentially magnified in her is that she's going through puberty now. Um, your son will likely go through his growth spurt around 14, at least that's the average age. Um, and so you you may see some of that as well. But really what it is, is that you're pointing at the fact that there are individual differences. Um, so the way that your son responds to the same type of diet and the way your daughter responds to a different type of diet um, can be very um, varied. Um, the other thing is things like physical activity. So for example, one of your children may be inclined to be more physically active, which makes a huge difference in insulin resistance and can really help reduce insulin resistance. Um, uh, one of your children may crave different types of foods. Um, and so just like we have different personalities, um, even though it's this, it's, you know, genetically they're so similar, um, your kids are probably very different in terms of personality. It's the same way in terms of how they respond to their food environment. Mm. Thank you so much for that. That was a great, great uh, perspective. We have to leave it there, though, and uh, we have another segment left. Doctor, been speaking with Dr. Anya Yastrobov about food. Um, and thank you, Dr. Yastrobov, for joining sure. us from the thank Yale Studios. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, we still want to hear from you. What do you eat and why? Have you been able to lose weight and keep it off? Or are you wondering how to do that? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wnpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. When we come back from the break, we're going to simmer down just a tad and talk about the politics of food within indigenous communities. Please stick around. To the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. 
This is where we live. I'm David DeRoche in for Lucy Now Potential. I want to bring someone into this conversation whose experience highlights not only how disconnected Western society food often is, but how its food values are often pushed onto other people and how that can be especially harmful uh, to the health and culture of indigenous peoples. So joining us by phone to talk about this phenomenon is Ade Briones. She is director of programs uh, for the Native Food and Agriculture Initiative at the First Nations Development Institute. She is Kochiti and Kiowa. Uh, Ade, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, and also join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. There's a chance we might not take your call because you only have about uh, nine minutes to spend with a day, and we really want to get into her story. A day you were raised on a Cochiti Indian reservation in New Mexico. Just uh, describe what life was like for you growing up on the reservation. Absolutely. So Cochiti is in central New Mexico, and as you can imagine, um, most of the community is located very in very rural parts of um, New Mexico, so it takes about one hour to get to the nearest grocery store. Mm. Um, the, there's about 800 people, very close-knit community, um, very culturally strong, and very uh, familial ties are very important. Um, growing up, we um, I think I had the typical diet of any Indian kid of the time, um, which was a mash of um, government food subsidies and um, what little traditional food sources we had left. So it was um, it, it it was like your first segment. Um, the diet of American Indian people at the time was standardized, so pretty mm-hmm. much everybody in the country, in Indian country, pretty much got the same foods, which was um, government subsidies from the commodity food box, which was, we called it commods, and you have um, a, a different type of different types of food, mainly flour, um, butter, uh, cheese was one of the favorites, powdered eggs, powdered milk, um, and at that time, that was a pretty standardized box. Powdered eggs and powdered cheese, that does not sound very appetizing. <laughs> we had a joke in Kochiti. How do you know when um, when it's a windy day outside and you, your, your eggs are blowing away? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, I can imagine, you know, having to forego sort of the, the food tr- that you would traditionally eat for this had some sort of impact not only on... Um, on your health, but just also on the culture. Can you just sort of describe some of those impacts? Oh, absolutely. So you have, when you disconnect the people from the land, um, you have, you not only change their diet, but you change their social structures. And so in our community where we were basically subsistence farmers for eons of generations, where our whole world was based on cultivating and uh, the, the ceremonial calendars based on going outside and planting or going outside and doing preparing for planting, um, that it, it's devastating to lose that. And so you have a lot of social reactions within the community once that happens. And then you layer that on top with a change in diet. Um, and so, and you have very, then you'll have very quick changes in how not only people eat, but how they interact with one another. And it takes a community and a culture quite a long time to figure out how to adjust 
if it if it changes at a rapid pace as it did in my community, it was a period of five to ten years where mm. the changes happened almost all at once. Wow. And so right now in our community, it's been um, about 30 years since we've seen that uh, change. Now we're we're really trying to figure out how to return to some of those um, original life ways mm-hmm. and our our youth are um, struggling. You know, you have you you look in the environment today, and any American Indian youth is going to have the same influences that other mainstream American youth have. You have the internet, you have TV, you have iPhones, mm-hmm. and it takes you further and further away from. Um, the land and from those original life waves. So not only do we have our history and that disruption to deal with, we have modern influences. And so it makes it really hard for a community to return to some of the most important life ways where we learn culture. And one of the things that seems to consistently pop up as um, Indigenous peoples have been sort of uh, either forced or for uh, for just out of necessity to take sort of a Western diet on is sort of this increase in in inflammation, diabetes, um, all sorts of, of conditions that never existed before. How has this change in diet affected the health of, of your community? Well, I, you can definitely see um, the change in my own lifetime. Uh, you look at pictures of my grandparents or even of my parents and they're very fit, they're very healthy, and part of the reason for that was the diet and that they were in doing physical labor for the land. They were actually cultivating their own food, going out at 5 a.m. in the morning to go weed and hoe, and um, there was just a lot of physical activity surrounding our foods. And to see that decrease in physical activity, to see the change in diet, like physically i can see it i'm not a doctor and so i really can't diagnose the the changes but you can definitely see it in my own lifetime which is a period of like from 10 to 20 years mm. but i think the most important um part of that it's become it, it's it's almost become a, a lifestyle a, a typical common like body type now and part of that comes from you know, the standardization of our diet. And a lot of it has to do with where we source our food. And a lot of it, because we're in rural communities, comes from outside resources like the federal government. Right, right. Well, there we have a. Uh, we could talk to you for another half an hour, an hour on this, but unfortunately, we, we've run out of time. Um, we do want to keep this conversation going, though. Uh, if you are on Facebook and Twitter, find us at Where We Live. Ask your questions. Hopefully, a day, maybe you can join us on uh, the social media platform. A day, Briones. She's director of programs uh, for the Native Food and Agricultural Initiative at the First Nations Development Institute. Thank you so much, a day, for joining us. Thank you. I'm David DeRoshan for Lucy Nopithanchel. Where We Live is produced by senior producer Lydia Brown and producer Carmen Baskoff. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. She's also been running the boards today. Check out wnpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>